From hosepipe bans to sewage released into our seas, water-related news stories are never far from the headlines. But what can we do to secure our water supplies for the future? And what challenges do we face if we don't act? This is Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth. In this series, we're exploring how breakthroughs here are changing our world today and in the future. This time, how to solve the UK's water supply crisis. Today, we meet Dr. Peter Crodas, a senior lecturer in water environmental engineering in the School of Civil Engineering and Surveying at the University of Portsmouth. I'd got to that stage in my life without ever really thinking about water because you turn on your tap and it magically appears. You turn off your tap and it magically disappears down the sink or you flush your toilet and it magically appears. And it's only when I was having to really see where the water was coming from and what's happening to it, you realise that there's an awful lot of work that goes on to get the water to that tap in the first place. Peter is leading a vision for future water security in the UK, an essential focus as the weather becomes less predictable and the country's aged infrastructure fails to match the water requirements of the 21st century. Peter's water-based academic journey starts a long way from the British shores, across the South Atlantic Ocean to Botswana. Expecting to be helping build African schools, he was a little surprised when he discovered what his role would be. The job that they had at the time I came out was actually building a geology mine for the De Beers Diamond Company. So it wasn't really what I had been envisaging. But as it was this kind of geology camp, we set up in the middle of the desert, miles away from anywhere, and we had to tank all of our water in. So I was building some of the infrastructure for the camp, things where they were going to live, the toilet blocks, shower blocks and so on. And so I was needing water to do the construction. You need a lot of water to build things, to make concrete and so on. The geologists were already on site, so they needed a lot of water to wash their samples and do their processing. And then we all needed water every day just for brushing our teeth and washing and stuff. So even though I went there on a kind of structural, kind of more traditional civil engineering route, it really opened my eyes to the idea that, okay, water is really important for so many different reasons and there's these conflicts around when you don't have enough water, how do you prioritise? Do I do a concrete pour today and the geologists have to wait till their samples tomorrow? Shall we make sure we have enough water to kind of drink and wash our food and our clothes these days? And so I came back from that and that really just indicted me onto the, the water route. Whilst the UK has a more robust water infrastructure than many countries today, and we don't have to make the kind of difficult decisions that Peter made in Botswana, it hasn't always been that way. Go back 150 years and things look and smell very different. In the middle of the 19th century, we had what's known as the Great Stink, where we used to have a separate sanitation system where our toilets would be kind of pits separate and then all of the surface water, rainwater, would drain back into the Thames. When the wonderful water closet idea came along, it was actually a terrible thing for sanitation because it just mixed all of our waste in with loads of water. It couldn't kind of sit in it in a cesspit anymore. It ended up going into the Thames as well, and it got so bad that London in 1858, the smell of the Thames was so bad, Parliament could even sit. They, they had to go and find somewhere else to meet because the smell in there was just too bad for them even to kind of have a meeting. And you might think that politics stinks today. Here in the 21st century, the sources of our drinking water are pretty much the same as it was back in the 1800s. But the delivery and management of that water has developed through technology. We have this very centralised system now, so we will pump up the water or pump it out of a, a reservoir or lake. We'll take it to a treatment centre, try and get it to drinking water standard, and then we'll distribute it from that kind of one point to lots of people in different parts of a catchment. And then, again, once we've used it and it goes back into the sewers, into the drains, 
We then take it all the way to a wastewater treatment plant. So we're kind of very dependent on individual kind of point sources of where we get the water from, how we treat it. We are one of the leaders in the world in terms of the amount of treatment we do and the quality that comes out of the pipe. But you pay for that in the amount of energy, the amount of kind of chemicals, the amount of technology you put into treatment. So what we have is about a third of the water we use in our houses is flushed down the toilet. And when you look at the amount of energy it's taken to get that out of a reservoir, a river out of the ground is even more because you're pumping it up from deep underground. You've then treated it to the super high level to make it safe to even drink. You then pumped it under high pressure from that central treatment works all the way to someone's house. And then suddenly you're turning it into wastewater with one flush of the handle and that water is treated to one of the highest standards in the world. You're really not getting the benefit of it being that highly treated when you just flush it all away. And then the problem that on top of the drought issue we've seen has been big on the news is these combined sewer overflows. So the amount of pollution that's going out into our rivers and into our coastal areas. And part of this is caused by the amount of sewage we're creating. Let's talk about that. Water shortages and problems with sewage have indeed been regular headlines on our TV screens and in the newspapers in recent months. The modern, centralised system that Peter describes, as good as it is, is also part of the problem. We kind of talked about our human water cycle, where we get our water from, how we put it back into the environment. But that's obviously part of a wider water cycle, the natural water cycle, where probably everyone learnt about it in their kind of middle secondary school at some point. The oceans and the water evaporates up into clouds and the clouds rain and it falls onto the land, goes into river streams or soaks into the ground and into the aquifers and eventually all makes its way out to sea and evaporates again. But what that means is that when you're trying to take water out of that environment, you're taking that one pinch point of kind of when the rain hits in a river, a reservoir, an aquifer, and you're trying to take it out at that point. So if that whole cycle isn't kind of consistent, so you haven't got rain for a while, for example, you draw down the reservoirs, you're still using the same amount of water, but it's not coming back in. And it's saying you can draw down your aquifers underground, and if they're not getting filled up again, then you're using water that isn't replacing and that's when you start to have problems. And this scenario, when we're at the mercy of the weather we're given, isn't a great starting point. We're getting larger droughts, we're getting longer uh, floods and it's more unpredictable so it's very difficult to say year on year whether you're going to get a long drought, a big flood or anything. But flooding causes a problem as well to the system because it ends up transporting the water a lot quicker. So whereas we'd like a kind of steady rainfall that could fill up a reservoir over a long period of time. If you have a huge flood, that reservoir might fill up, but then the rest of the water will kind of bypass and go back into the ocean. Or the amount of human development we've got, so the amount of paved areas we have now, I mean, that water that might have gone down into the, the ground, into the aquifer we could use, that shoots off to the ocean, and now it's kind of salt water, ocean water, not the fresh water in the aquifer that we needed. So the floods and the droughts are both kind of causing the problems, even though that seems a bit counterintuitive. If that sounds a little depressing, the UK is more fortunate compared to what other countries are already facing. Let's head back to the African continent, where rolling water blackouts are the reality in Cape Town. So you might only get water for a few hours a day, so you'd have to kind of maybe fill up your bath and everyone would just have to bathe in that for the day, try and collect the water that you needed. And this is really very similar to work I've seen in less developed countries. I worked in Guatemala for a year, building water supplies for communities that didn't have it. And we would pipe down water from a spring that the community owned. 
to the village, but that spring could be maybe an hour's hike away. And so if the people wanted water, they'd have to hike up this mountain for an hour, collect what they could carry. Water's really heavy when you actually try and carry a lot of it around and then hike back down this mountain with a very heavy kind of load. And then you really get to think about, okay, how much water do I really need today? How many times do I want to go up this mountain and back with 10 kilogram weight on my head? As we've demonstrated many times on Life Solved, the easiest and quickest solution often starts with us, the individual consumers. Because the less water we use, the longer that our current infrastructure can take. So if we look at how much water we can responsibly take from our aquifers or just how large our reservoirs and rivers are, how much water we can take from there. If every individual is using less water per person, that kind of water source will last longer so it could get through a longer drought. There's a really fascinating example of this in Cape Town in 2017 where they had had many years of a very prolonged drought to the point where they looked at how much water was left in their reservoirs. They looked at how much water were people using and say, okay, we've got a date of a few months in the future. This is the date there'll be no more water for the whole of Cape Town. And so they put in some extreme water saving measures. They managed to actually save half a billion litres of water every day just by putting in water saving measures. It kind of showed or highlighted to those people who were very used to having lifestyles like us of just turning on a tap, using water in the same way, lots of swimming pools and golf courses in Cape Town. It's a very well-developed city. And they really had this squeeze which showed them how far they could go. And I think it's about trying to find that balance of, of how far can we go and, and maintain a nice lifestyle, enjoy the benefits of, of having water supplied to houses, but try and make the most of it. Lovely Beautiful manicure green lawns are wonderful if, it, if you have got the water for it. But if we're starting to look at a future where we have less water and it's hotter, maybe, you know, adapting the, the kind of gardens we have to that kind of climate. It's a case of not trying to get everybody to go backwards into an extreme where we're not getting the benefits of the piped water supplies that we have, but just trying to really think consciously about every kind of behaviour, really, and, and are we doing the most we can. Because as it stands, we're all using much more water than we think we are. A really fascinating survey done during lockdown in August 2020, where about 2,000 UK residents were asked how much water they thought their household used in an average day, and 46% of them said they reckon their household used 20 litres of water or less. And so we use about 140, 150 litres per person per day, so a typical kind of four-person household is using around 500 litres of water every day and half of the people surveyed thought they were using less than 20 for their whole household. So this kind of, this idea of this invisible water that we don't really see how much water we're using. Some of Cape Town's more extreme solutions aren't needed here yet. But without changing the way we are today, we're heading in that direction. The water cycle is extremely large, extremely complex. The whole kind of weather patterns, where the water gets stored, how it moves through. It's very difficult to just kind of look out your window, see it raining and think, oh great, that means suddenly we'll have lots of water tomorrow. It's a lot more complex than that. And I think what the water companies try to do is monitor these kind of groundwater levels, monitor these reservoir levels to try and check these and and know that, okay, if it's 50% at the end of a winter, for example, in the summer you're going to use a lot more, recharge a lot less, then you're facing problems. And that was the issue with Cape Town, is you're just kind of two or three years of drought away from all of your buffer going, and that's what ended up happening. The first year you have a drought and your reservoirs are kind of 70% level, so you think, okay, there's no problem, it'll fill up next year. 
second level, second year, there's more drought and suddenly your levels are at 30%. And then the third year, it's kind of gone. So I think maybe a lesson a lot of water industries have learned around that is maybe trying to project ahead and thinking about these, what used to be a worst case scenario, but what's happening more and more of how many years of drought or how many months of drought would it take to really rock the system? And it's a lot less than we'd like. Taking on board the need for individual responsibility, can technology also play a part in protecting our vital water supplies? Those 19th century pipes are pretty leaky, aren't they? We talked already about the ageing infrastructure we have, these huge miles and miles of pipes, both for water supply and for sewage, the water supply pipes have a lot of leaks in that system, famously now, losing millions of litres of water. And to replace them is extremely expensive. You know, lots of them are underground. You need to kind of block off roads that affects the economy. You need this kind of technology to replace the pipes, new pipes themselves. So it's extremely expensive and very kind of disruptive to replace those. And it's the same for the sewer system on the other end. And so I think... Sticking with this kind of largely centralised system, you're getting a lot of the water losses, the inefficiencies from these leaks. It's going to be a very expensive system to replace. And you stay at the mercy of the weather. You're then kind of waiting for it to rain. Whereas if you're using water within the house, you can probably recycle around 80% of that water in a kind of technologically perfect world, which means the amount of water that you're relying on from somewhere else even if you collect it from your own roof, for example, the rain, you can get very close to being self-sufficient in water. And therefore, this whole idea that we need to wait on the ecological water cycle to help us out, we can kind of take that out and take out some of that uncertainty. One of the biggest environmental news stories of the last year has been the release of sewage directly into our waters. Once again, a slightly decentralised system might well be the solution. So these combined sewer overflows, they're generally triggered when the baseline kind of wastewater in the sewer is added to by the rainwater and it's the amount of rainwater that our sewer system and wastewater treatment plants can't handle and then they have this licence to just say, well, it can't stay in the sewers, there's no more capacity, it can't go into the treatment plant, it either backs up into your house or it goes out into the lake or into the river and so it's kind of the less of those two evils. But there's huge pressure on that now and so if you remove toilets from a sewer system, you not only remove that kind of bulk of water that's going in there, but you remove the biggest contaminant. So if we get those contaminants out of the sewers together, combined sewer overflow might have some kind of grey water, so some of your shampoo suds or something, but a lot of the most potent pollutants in there wouldn't have gone into the sewers in the first place. But despite the challenges we face, the advances in technology can give us hope for the future. The water companies can be cautious about going too far too fast, which Peter says is both a help and a hindrance. You don't want somebody deciding to put in some weird and wacky, untested experimental facility onto the water you're drinking or what's happening to your sewer. You want them to be approaching things with caution because it's such a fundamental part of human health that you need a very low risk of failure in this infrastructure. So I think as academics or innovators, it might seem frustrating at the kind of low uptake from new technologies, but I do understand there's very good reason for that. And I think then from the technology perspective, it can be quite disincentivizing to put research and development money into areas where it's so hard to break through. In my latest research, trying to look at toilets that can be disconnected from the water and wastewater system, there aren't many companies trying to do that at the moment because there isn't really a route to market for it. Everybody's kind of fixed on this system that we've got at the moment. And so there's very little opportunity for 
uh, disruptive technology to come in and suddenly change the world, you'd need to really kind of be having to force, run against the tide of the whole industry and, and government policy. Whereas on the other side, it's very difficult for government to develop policy if they don't have an idea of what they're developing it for. We're going to need to find some way for any disruption in sanitation or water for us to be able to lay out a vision of what it would look like, show that it's practical, get some early uptake before, you know, governments and water companies will really buy in. And so it's a kind of bit of a chicken and egg. Where do you get the kind of incentive for the technology innovators and how do the government or water industry incentivize them until they really have an idea what it might look like? Technology, individual change, forecasting and modelling and a pinch of industry and governmental disruption needs to all come together to protect our water supplies in the years to come. We're limited by the centuries-old system that we've inherited and we're challenged by the lack of uptake in the proposals for tomorrow. But if members of the public, the water companies and the regulator all do their bit, we can look forward to another 150 years of a safe, reliable and ecologically sound water system. Thanks for joining us for Life Solved. If you want to find out more about research at the University of Portsmouth, go to our website, You can also get news on the latest developments here at the university direct to your inbox. Just subscribe at port.ac.uk forward slash solve. We'll be back next Thursday with another story of how work that's happening here is changing all of our lives for good. Catch you then.